Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel. This week on Crime World... There was a Republican police from 1920. I mean, the IRA was effectively trying to run an underground government. And actually, there was a crime wave. 1919-1920, there's a wave of bank robberies, post office robberies, robberies of individuals, robberies of pubs in Dublin and in rural areas as well. So the IRA tried to actually clamp down on that. On occasion, solving bank robberies and giving the money back to the banks. I'm Nicola Tallent, and you can listen to my podcast, Crime World, wherever you get your podcasts. It was great and I was delighted. I think that'll be a bit of a pressure valve release. You can nearly hear that in his interview after the game, I thought, with Roundtree. You know, he was on, I think he was on TG Carr. Um, his Irish wasn't great, but um, he, uh, no, I was really pleased for him. Like, I think they have assembled a bunch of really good, actually, I think they're really good rugby wise, but they're actually good people too. So you never like seeing them under the cosh like that. So really pleased for, for, for the whole club. Ireland are going to win that game 100%. I cannot see them losing that gets it out for a game. Three out of three. I've already penciled in three W's next to the three fixtures. I've moved on to the Six Nations where a Grand Slam is forthcoming. And what happens when you see the back three in the second row, Will, when they have about five caps between them, you know? (laughs) A much improved Munster, Ireland's injury worries and the chaotic financial state of English club rugby are all topics of discussion on the latest episode of the Left Wing Podcast. Will Slattery here with you as always in part two of the show. We will be joined by Chris Foy of the UK Daily Mail to discuss all the fallout from Wasps joining Worcester in administration in the English Premiership and what that means for English rugby going forward. But first, I'm delighted to be joined by Luke Fitzgerald and Keen Tracy to discuss matters closer to home. Keen, we should probably give Munster their due nice and early this week given it's been a rough couple of weeks for them uh, to start the season. But they were vastly improved against the Bulls. What stood out to you most about their victory? I thought their collision winning was much better than than what it has been. I thought their discipline uh, improved as well. I think you probably would caveat it all by saying that the Bulls were, were pretty poor, I thought. Um, an absolute shadow of a team that beat Leinster in the semi-final last season. But look, that's not really any of Munster's concern. I don't think anyone within the squad or outside the squad in terms of supporters will be getting ahead of themselves, particularly not when you're going to to Dublin this weekend. But in terms of just getting back on track, it was exactly what they needed. Um, I thought there was more signs of what they were trying to do. It was absolutely nowhere near perfect, but at least in attack, you could trying to start to see more of the shapes that they were were looking to play, uh, looking to get it to wit. and they got a bit of joy out of it, to be fair, uh, on a few occasions. But in the end, I suppose it was the, the kind of the old monster, if you like. I mean, it was the grunt up front that really got the job done for them in the end. And I don't think there's any problem with, with that either. I mean, um, like for all the talk of Munster moving in a new direction, I think the foundations of what make Munster great should always be there. Um, So having a pack that can front up to what was still a beefy uh, bull side, I know they weren't great, but it was still, they were still a big, big pack. So um, I thought it was encouraging um, for sure. But like I said, with what's coming this weekend, they could easily get another another wake up call. It wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me at all, particularly not when you look at the the injury list that's come out in light of it, which I'm sure we'll get onto. But I thought, yeah, there was like plenty of reasons to be encouraged. I thought Gavin Coombs was excellent. Obviously, scored two tries, and you know I thought Joey Carberry was really good as well, and he he looked to be playing with a little bit more of a swagger, I'd say. And I know 
every rugby player is a confidence player. But I always think Joey Carberry in particular, you know, when he's not kind of fully backing and believing himself, he can really kind of, I don't know, maybe retreat into the shell a little bit. But I thought he looked far more confident on the ball. He actually took several big big tackles a couple of them right on the edge in terms of being late and in the past like they've been ones that have ended up broken his arm and whatnot but he looked a little bit more robust um taking the ball flat to the line so uh lots of reasons to be encouraged will without kind of getting ahead of themselves i would say yeah i think you made one point there that i, I really agree with and that is you know even though they're bringing in this new framework and they want to you know move the ball a lot more and have a more multi-skill team but they don't want to completely forget what they're good at in the in the first place. Because like, I think back to the Van Gran era where everyone, I think, agreed by the end the game plan maybe wasn't fit for purpose in terms of winning a big trophy. But they still produced a lot of big victories under Johan Van Gran. And that was kind of the foundation of that. So I think a marrying of the two, because even Leinster, for as good as they play a lot, sometimes they do, you know, even in Connacht, you know, they, they, they kind of go to that forward-oriented game plan and, and it serves them well too. So you want to be able to do both, ideally. Luke, you know, what stood out for you? Keen mentioned a lot of kind of things that were positives. Obviously, the Bulls as well. You know, that pick and go sequence at the end kind of summed up, you know, they, what they brought to the table on the night. Um, but, you know, an improvement. We, we talked last week that there weren't any green shoots over the first couple of weeks. There definitely was on Saturday. Yeah, there was. And I think, um, you know, they can be, oh, do you know, do you know, I'm just delighted we have something positive to say about Munster. You know, it's, it's been a long couple of weeks. Um, you know, I was really pleased for them. I think they really needed that. Um, I think there would have been like a lot of concern if they hadn't got over the line against the Bulls um, at home. You know, Munster should still be a force there. So, uh, really pleasing, as you said. Carberry looked good. Um, looked very good for that try full back when he uh, and the kick through for Lockman, obviously a bit fortuitous, but um, yeah, no, he did look good at ten. Look, I mean, I think they gave him a good platform. Um, in terms of the tries, I mean, look, I think they were all close enough to to the, to the try line and they were kind of pressure-built uh, tries. Um, I think most teams have to have that kind of pick-and-go game close to the line because it's the easiest. Obviously, it's not the easiest place to defend in terms of, like, you know, there's pressure on your line. But in terms of the numbers and where the numbers are, you know, you just stack everyone you have on the line. So it's actually quite a difficult place to break teams down out wide. Uh, it requires... Um, you know, a lot of skill and oftentimes it does actually take a lot of forward play in the tight exchanges to really open a team up because their numbers just get dragged in to stop you scoring tries. So I think there was it, it was lots of really good play there. Coombs, is, I mean, he's a big, he's strong, isn't he? He's a strong man, close to the line. Um, and he looked very good. I actually thought a Hearn looked good. There was a few other guys looked good. Um, and, um, you know, I think that was really positive. Um, and um, look, they'll have some injury concerns going into next, you know, into into this weekend. Burn is, I mean, Burn is just, he's so key for them, isn't he? I mean, um, such an important player. Like, he's brilliant for Munster. And look, brilliant for nearly every jersey he pulls on. But I, I just think he's so key for them as well. So they need him back. Um, but yeah, so look, it was great. And I was delighted. I think that'll be a bit of a pressure valve release. You can nearly hear that in his interview after the game, I thought, with Roundtree. Um, you know, he was on, I think he was on TG Carr. Um, his Irish wasn't great, but um, he, uh, no, I was really pleased for him. Like, I think they have assembled a bunch of really good, actually, think they're really good rugby-wise, but they're actually good people too. So you never like seeing them under the cosh like that. So um, really pleased for, for, for the whole club, uh, Will. Keen, how much backing do you think these young players are going to be getting over the next few weeks with you know two big games? But then even later on in the year when the you know the international games have cooled off and you're back into kind of the club the club kind of scene, 
Edwin Odogbo has been a revelation. I know he picked up another a calf injury, so he's another person who's dead. But as Luke mentioned, Thomas O'Hearn, who came in, looked really, really good. Jack Crowley looked really strong coming off the bench as well. Do you think, because that was a kind of frustration with the Van Gran era, that guys would get glimpses and then they would disappear again for a long period of time. Do you expect Roundtree to be more willing to try some of these younger players? Because, you know, that middle core who Donico Callahan kind of picked out a while back, like they've been there for a long time. So is it now time to give guys like that a, a more prominent role in the team? A hundred percent. And I think it will happen as well. Um, I think the, the culture in Munster has been starting to change even before Van Gran left and I, I know there was a lot of frustration amongst the, the younger players who for so long it kind of became a bit like maybe Joe Schmidt's Ireland at the end where guys were just picked on the team on reputation and it didn't really form didn't really matter so guys were coming back from from Ireland camp and maybe some of them weren't hadn't even been playing but they were walking straight back into the Munster team when younger guys were kind of the ones who've been keeping the show on the road and not doing too badly while they were away so that was definitely a frustration amongst certain members of the squad from from what I know but I think the culture in Munster has been changing and I think one guy who's been absolutely vital to that is Ian Costello and since he's come back from from Wasps to take over the academy He's done brilliant work already. Obviously, you know, the highlight being that that game in Wasps last season when so many of the younger guys got got to play and got a famous victory. But, you know, I think Munster have connected more with, we'll say, the AIL clubs. I know that there's a big focus been put on guys being allowed to play when they're not being needed by Munster, which was a big issue because there's a disconnect between how the club rugby in, in Limerick, I would say in particular, has felt. And I've been writing about this in the past. So I think Ian Costello coming back has been massive in terms of kind of pushing younger guys and putting them in the shop window. And I think Graham Roundtree, this is one of the one of the the joys, I think, and the beauties of uh, having a coach taking over. He's had a front row seat for what didn't work under Van Gran. And I would say not trusting young players was one of the biggest flaws of that era because, like you said, when it came to the crunch, um, guys were just put back in and it really didn't stand them well at all. So I would be very, very optimistic that, Graham Rowntree, along with Dennis Leamy and Mike Prendergast and Andy Kiriakou, who it's worth mentioning as well. Like he's obviously taken over the forwards, but he's come from the academy too. So he's got a very good idea of the caliber of players. Like, you know, uh, Luke touched on a couple of them there, like Jack Crowley and Thomas O'Hearn. And it'll be very interesting. Like, I mean, they were both outstanding on the Emerging Ireland Tour as well. And I know some people by the time they listen to this will probably have already seen the Ireland squad. But I, I would say those two guys in particular won't be far away, particularly with the injuries from getting from getting into the Ireland squad this year. You look at like Harry Byrne is missing too now. So a, a spot is open if you want to look at that. I know he hadn't played much rugby, but he was still on the New Zealand tour. And I think a guy like Jack Crowley looks re- really confident. So um, these are all very, very good headaches, I would say. Um, because you're right, Will, Donico Callaghan probably, you know, probably upset, I would say, a lot of players have, have heard that. It reminded me of Alan Quinlan a few years back when he was fairly critical as well. And whatever about people like me coming on this podcast and criticizing players, guys don't like to hear that from, from club legends. So I think that will really have stung. And I think you saw a bit of a response in, in the last, particularly last week from, from certain guys too. So um, it bodes well. And if you have this crop of young players, like the, for years, the Munster Academy, just wasn't producing it just went a bit stale wasn't producing guys and now you see like a guy like Ruin Quinn who came off the bench a couple of weeks ago the youngest ever player he's only just done his leaving cert still 18 um you know so there's a lot of reasons to to be optimistic and I would be very very hopeful that a guy like Graham Roundtree will trust youth uh, when it comes to it 
Yeah, and there's an Ireland A game against New Zealand on a Friday night in the RDS as well, which is going to be a great bit of exposure for some other young players maybe who featured in that emerging Ireland tour. So Munster go to the Aviva Stadium then on Saturday, Luke. You know, the last time they played Leinster in the Aviva Stadium, it was a Leinster third string towards the end of the season, a game Munster really needed to win, and Leinster beat them pretty comprehensively. So that's kind of going to be fresh in our minds. It's a huge task. Leinster got the job done against Connacht as well. Like, how are you rating where Leinster are going into this game? Um, oh, look, I think they're in a very good position. I think, um, you know, uh, the, the hard thing for us is going to be if Leinster, uh, you know, produce the performance that I think, you know, they should, uh, you know, just given both teams form and, 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 uh, I think the, uh, the recent history, you know, just doesn't look good for Munster. I think, you know, we need to not panic because I think Leinster is still the team to beat in this competition. Uh, South African teams are always very difficult away from home on that, and, and they've definitely brought something to the competition. But Leinster are still loaded with, with quality, really, you know, good coaching uh, coaching staff, um, and it'll be a huge ask in the Aviva. Um, so um, I, I don't think it'll go well for Munster. I think, um, you know, they, they might... You know, first 50, 60 minutes, you know, they'll have that heart uh, that you'd expect from anyone in an Interpro. But I just think, you know, particularly if Johnny Sexton starts, I just think Lancer will have too much for them. And I think particularly in the pack, I think they'll, they were able to rise last week. I thought the Bulls were poor enough, to be honest. But I think in the Aviva, I think Lancer just have too much quality, too much depth in there. And I think that's always been the point of difference for me the last couple of years for Lancer against most of the inter-provincial teams. That front row, like it's, I know like they're, they're, they're missing Kelleher, but it's a big loss. But I just think Sheehan is like, what a player he is. Like, And then you look at the props. Um, you know, I just, it's so hard to contain them. Like, they just, it means that everyone on the pitch pretty much is a good ball handler and is a good carrier. And like, there's just threats everywhere and they can get the ball wherever they want. If Sexton's there, he just pulls the strings. So it's a real difficult ask for, for Munster. Um, you know, I think it might be a little bit helped if they have a few more back three guys back. But, I'm not sure that's going to be the case. I haven't heard many rumblings of guys being back in this week. Keane might be able to update you a bit on that, but um, I still think they look a bit bare in that part of the pitch as well as as in uh, you know as well as the front row versus a Leinster who look bloody strong. Will so I'm just I look I just don't think it'll be I don't think it'll be a good night for them. I think it'll be um, Leinster look very very strong. Um, you know the the important thing is that it doesn't look too ugly on the scoreboard at the end. I think for for Munster uh, would be my take on it at the moment. Yeah, Keen, like one of the big talking points from Lens' perspective, given they've won all their games so far, is that their injury list. And, you know, there's obviously some uncertainty around how long some players are out. Some guys are kind of back towards fitness, but aren't playing this weekend, like Hugo Keenan and, and other guys, like maybe Lowe and, and Gibson Park. Because it does not on effect for Ireland as well. Like there's a lot of key guys who haven't played any rugby or very little rugby or are currently injured. It's kind of a strange place with so many people uncertain on where they're at fitness-wise. Yeah, because like on Monday, the Leinster update dropped and it was fairly brutal. And then come Tuesday, Munster's one was fairly brutal as well. And like a couple of them you maybe weren't really expecting, but like someone like Ty Byrne, I was actually watching back, um, <clears throat> excuse me, the the incident with what happened to him. And he was clearing out a ruck and you could see he went down injured, but he actually starts punching the ground initially as it happened, which really like is never a good thing. And when you hear guys guys going for scans, you know, it's, it's never good news either. Like Craig Casey is another guy as well who, you know, 
that would have been like hopefully he's he is fit and it's not too serious but that would have been a very interesting selection this weekend if Craig Casey got picked ahead of Connor Murray and I think he would have been fully deserving of starting ahead of him um so yeah like between the two days between Munster and Leinster like there's some big big names on on that injury list um and the box game is what less than three weeks away now so um yeah pretty costly weekend uh last weekend if you were see and then when you think Munster and Leinster this weekend there could be more casualties from that so um it's really like it's really disappointing like I, I just hope that by the time that box game comes around that Ireland aren't missing and same for South Africa actually aren't missing loads of players because this is going to be a true barometer obviously this summer was unbelievable but I still think there's question marks over Ireland going up against South Africa and France when like they big meaty meaty packs because I just don't think that all blacks pack is on the same level in in terms of like their bulk and size so I just hope that you know, even if you look at the second row, like the amount of second rows that are like James Ryan obviously picked up an injury last week here in Treadwell, Ryan Baird are all injured. I think Joe McCarthy is probably the only one still still standing from from the summer tour. So you don't want it to become a thing where, you know, Ireland are patching together a team because we will still be a little bit, I'd say, unclear by the time that the World Cup comes around. So um I would say Andy Farrell has got a lot of headaches as far as like we're recording this on Tuesday. Like my information was that today even like he hadn't finalized his squad because he had so many um concerns. So my sense would be that he'd probably give as many as the frontliners like you know like someone like Gibson Park is just so important how Ireland play at the moment and even if he hasn't played for Leinster I'd imagine the plan is to try and get him minutes if he can next week but for most of the other guys like Johnny Sexton and your Caelan Doris whoever your frontliners like this is going to be the last game they're going to play before before that box game so yeah Andy Farrell's got a, a lot of headaches Will and like I said it'd just be it'd be disappointing wouldn't it if if it wasn't two full teams going at it. Yeah, especially we haven't played them under in the kind of the Razi Erasmus now Jack Nienaber error. The last time they played was when Alistair Kutsi was in charge in 2017. And I suppose you mentioned second row there. If there's one area you don't want to be light against South Africa, it's in the second row. Because it, it's interesting, Luke, you know, part some parts of the team, like, you know, prop, out half, centre, the top guys are really fit and firing and having great seasons so far. So they're key areas of the team. And then back three, second row in particular, look very light given the absentees. Like, People like, say, James Lowe, Hugo Keenan, if they don't play Gibson Park, if they don't play a game before South Africa, do you start them or do you leave them off and go with guys who have played game time this year, even though the three guys I mentioned were starters in a really successful summer tour? Like, How important do you think is the game time for guys like that in, in this game? I know it's a few weeks away, but just it's, it's a good talk. It's so about difficult. It. Yeah, really difficult, Will. I, I think... Um... I think it'll probably depend how, like, I mean, there'll be constant communication amongst the, the um, you know, the physical, the, the physios and, and, and the kind of medical staff as to how different guys are progressing and different, you know, at different pace. I think fitness levels will be monitored throughout that as well. Like some guys will, you know, some guys will carry more weight than others. It's more difficult for them to come back and straight into a game. Um, you know, if they haven't been able to move around, if it's a leg injury, you know, there's lots of different things to, to consider, Will. And I think, um you know that makes it difficult to call like you know be be very exacting what i would say is generally speaking people do benefit from you know good you know previous performances in an irish jersey you know there is a bit of credibility attached to that and you get a bit of um a bit of leeway but 
God, it'll be very hard off the back of not even playing one game after preseason to, to come straight back in. So that's the real conundrum for him. I can see why he hasn't selected you know his full squad yet, but I think there might be an element of trust there. And I think if guys have trained well, if they've kept the weight off themselves and, and they're raring to go, he might well take a chance. But I think it's quite a big chance, to be honest, and it's not looking well. I agree. I think you'd rather have a few guys or you want to have a you know a reasonably full complement of guys playing you don't want guys coming back in from one you know from tour to november uh, you know even at a at a thinking about it on a different level it really increases the chances of kind of re-injuring things as well if you come into a massive like high pressure game you know at international level having not had any hits having not had any tackles no game time at all so there's other problems that it brings as well aside from just the performance on the day so yeah in a, we're in a tricky spot um you know and it's interesting yeah those they're very important positions but like second row to my mind I, i've been saying this for a while i can't think of any great team really that doesn't have two that hasn't had two brilliant second rows like I just think it's such an important part of the pitch. It's the it's your proper engine room. Uh, you know, obviously it's key for your for your um, for your scrum as well. That weight seems to be a massive thing. You see the the way the French and the South African packs really benefit from the weight there. Obviously, big front rows too. But I think it's really important for that. But just I mean, your line out too. They're just so important, and they get through a mountain of work. All the best second rows seem to get through a mountain of work for me. You think your Matt Fields, and you think of back east. You think of you know uh, the English. You know like. Uh, Martin Johnson, you, know, you go back all the way through the great teams. John Eels, every every great team seems to have a brilliant second row or pairing. So um, that's really important that they get those those you know a good pairing, um, you know, fit and, and experienced pairing because the box are so strong in that department. So I'd be a little bit concerned, Will, um, you know, about those selections. And I think there'll be it'll be a hard call between you know who gets the the credibility you know based on previous performances and gets in on the back of that uh without any um without any game time you know so i don't envy andy farrell yeah keen if if ty burn you know ian henderson james ryan say you know if, if those guys aren't fit for that first south africa game like what's the second row combination is kieran treadwell in there from what he did over the summer like who are your two starting second rows if the three guys who are currently injured don't make it edwin adogbo and thomas ahern easy there you go, Will. Uh, no, I'm joking. Um, Treadwell, I think, is injured as well, actually. I think he's got a chest injury. So this is what I mean. I think Joe McCarthy is the only um, fit lock from, from the summer. Um, it's very tricky to know because, like, Luke is right um, in terms of having, you know, world-class locks. And I think, you know, someone like James Ryan went through a difficult phase, a difficult phase like which was a lot down to injury, to be fair. But, God, I thought he was excellent come the end of the New Zealand tour. He was so, so important to, to that win. And um, particularly in the second test, he was outstanding. And then Sam Whitelock didn't play in that second test. And then he came back for the third because I think that was a real big kind of mental kind of hurdle for him to have gotten one over a player of, of that quality. And he did. He, he, was the, he got the better of him in the third test too. So um, it's, a, it's a very important position. But... Like we just don't know. Like there's so many guys. Like Ian Henderson hasn't played this season from that knee injury that he got in the first week when Ireland arrived in New Zealand in the summer. Like he's another guy who he's shown in the past that when he has injuries he can come back and hit the ground running. But I would agree with Luke. I think one, maybe two guys you can you could take a chance getting away with that. But when you look through the spine of your team and if you're talking about four or five guys who barely have played this season going up against the box, I think that's probably a recipe for, for disaster really. So um, I think the next couple of weeks will be key. Um, in an ideal world, um, Andy Farrell would be wrapping them all in cotton wool and not even worrying about the, the last URC game of the block next week. But I think if guys like Gibson Park, Hugo Keane and James Lowe 
Henderson, I'm not sure what his story is, but if they're able to play i'd imagine he'd be really keen for them even to get like 40 minutes under their belt next week which ordinarily wouldn't be the case they'd probably be already in camp so um 40 minutes keen you wouldn't go with 80 you wouldn't uh, or, or say they haven't played i think you need to get as much out of them would you go 60 even yeah like it probably depends you're right like 40, it probably depends no. on i know you want to wrap them in cotton, cotton wool but yeah like it's in an individual basis isn't it like some guys would recover far quicker far quicker than others so um yeah i'd imagine it's going to be a busy busy um couple of weeks on on the medical front because like you said i wouldn't be surprised if there's more casualties after this weekend like a, a monster leinster game with uviva like and then aren't ulster playing the the sharks like so there's there's tough tough games coming up this weekend too yeah and monster ulster is that game then you might be playing players in the week before the south africa game but keen at the same time like it is a november international it's not a world cup or a six nations game like should should ireland be rushing these guys back you know as quickly as possible or is there something to be said for you know using this depth you know we were building depth in the emerging Ireland tour we were building depth on the a team during the summer is it not the time to dip into that depth and let some of these guys return at their own pace. I know everyone wants that marquee blockbuster South Africa fixture to be chock full of stars, but on the other hand, you could say it might be better or certainly maybe wiser considering so many of these lads haven't played a minute this year. Yeah, I wouldn't disagree with that at all. I think if they could have their way, they'd rather be playing Australia first and they would probably be more, I would say, open to that idea but i just think the box and this mental thing and maybe i'm over egging this like correct me if i'm wrong either of you like but i just think playing south africa has such a massive test for this particular group because imagine if they were to back up a series win in new zealand by beating like the world champions albeit in dublin and it will be very different come the world cup where they're going to play south africa in the pool so i just think there's so much riding on on the first game i know it's only a november test but i think the ramifications further down the line that if, if Ireland were to get hammered out the gate, I just think it poses all the same questions that we've been asking over the last couple of years. So it'll be interesting. Ireland are not get Ireland are gonna win that game hundred percent. I cannot see them losing big that goal, big game. Goal. When you see when, three out of three, wait. I've already penciled in three W's next to the three fixtures. I've moved on to the Six <laughs> Nations. Uh, where a grand slam is forthcoming. And that. what happens when you see the back three in the second row will and they've about five caps between them, you know? <laughs> Well, if one of those new you know, young guys, Robert Balakoon, who's been tearing up trees, I, I don't mind him coming in on short notice because I think he's been crying out for an opportunity. So I'd be delighted to see him get into the back three personally. Second row, as you mentioned, it could be a, a different story depending on, on who's fit and who's not. Luke, in terms of the, the squad announcement, that you know, we'll know a lot of the, the names who are going to be there. Who, who of the kind of established people do you think is looking really sharp from what you've seen over the first five weeks? Uh, the obvious one is obviously Sexton. Um, you know, he's just. He's, I, I'm not going to keep going on because that's kind of a boring one. I mean, that's pretty fairly. One boring. more year. Um, but like God, he looks he looks so good against the Sharks, didn't he? Like, um, so yeah, I look. He looks very very good. I think. Um, the two guys in the center, Henshaw, uh, Henshaw, always like I look, and that was a big test for him up in uh, up against McCluskey, who's playing. He actually, played a good game up in, in uh, up in the Kingspan as well. Like he he did play well against him, but there's still a difference between him and Henshaw. People are always asking like why he hasn't got more caps. It's because Henshaw's there. He's so good. Um, so those two look really strong. That's a real nice place to be to be strong. Obviously for your game plan, like your ten, but from a defensive perspective, your first and second center Ringrose playing excellent as well, but. Jeez, good in the wing, didn't he? Um, but no, he's still playing very well. I think those two guys, I mean, they're just... 
when they're strong, I mean, you're, it just means you're, from a defensive perspective, it's very hard to break teams down. You know, if you have a good physical, like I played, you know, outside, obviously Darcy and O'Driscoll for years, it's so hard to break teams down when you've got a real strong centre partnership. Oftentimes they, you know, in general play after the first kind of bit of, bit of you know, obviously it's hard to break teams down off set piece when you've got really good centre partnerships with a back play. But leaving that aside, oftentimes your centres end up on the end of the defensive line uh, at, at either end once the, after the first phase. And it means that the organisation levels and the confidence that you have to get off the line and make big hits and things like that is brilliant. When you've got guys like that, like Henshaw and Ringrose, are two of the best I've seen. So that's what I, you know, they, they look really good. They look very strong. Uh, and I'd be very positive on those two. Uh, in terms of the pack, can't call him established, but I mean Sheehan. I, I think I think his throwing looks a lot better. I know there's a few messy ones the last couple. Of, you know, just conditions are very very tricky in in um in the sports ground. But I think he looks like he's improved a little bit there, and he's so dynamic in the loose. I mean, he's a real addition. You know, those. I mean, Shame Kelleher. Look, I don't know how, how serious that injury is. It doesn't sound great, but yeah, he he looks really really good uh, as well. If I was just to pick a few, I let Ian maybe have a go if you want him to have a look uh, or, or have his say in it. In terms of established guys, yeah, well, I'd agree. I'd agree with all that. Um, like a guy like Gavin Thornbury, I think if you're going to have a, a load of locks out injured, might be worth a look. I think injuries have played, have been unfortunate. I would say to him at different stages of a career, he's an absolutely big unit, and I, I just think certain guys will just improve massively when they go into Arden camp and, you know, they have different voices and stuff. And I think he would certainly be one who'd be worth a look if you're looking outside established guys. I'd like to, I'd like to see, like you're hit the nail on the head, Will, about that um, New Zealand A game that's going to be on. And like, you see the squad that they've picked, like that is a serious, serious squad. So while it's going to be a Jaeger in there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The, the, the much coveted Ali Jaeger from here, but that, that looks like that ship has sailed. But, um, like that's going to be a serious game. I know it's only an A game, but like I was just looking looking through this squad when it was named, and I was like, bloody hell, that's going to be a tough test. But even in terms of like that Fiji game, which is sandwiched between the Australia and the South Africa game, I would like to see more guys. Like I would agree with you, Robert Balakun, and I know it might be a bit early, but even in that A game, people like Tom O'Hearn and Jack Crowley. I would love to see you know Ireland using that, that emerging Ireland tour to to the benefit for what it was supposed to be for. Because like I mean, it was so obvious last week and. This was one of the things that the the players spoke about um, on the Emerging Ireland Tour, that when they came back, you know, they wanted to use the confidence that they had from working with the Ireland coaches and that. And I think we've seen that from from a few guys. So it'd be brilliant to see that kind of be continued as well. Um, But yeah, I would agree with all the names that, that Luke said there. I think Dan Sheehan has been outstanding it's just it's so like we got asked a question a couple of weeks ago on here you who would you who would the starting hooker be between the two of them and i made the point that sheehan hadn't done anything wrong and i think you'd probably have to say now that he's he's gone more than that i think he even looks better he, he's constantly improving uh his rate of development has been unreal considering um considering like he wasn't even in the leinster academy initially so it's just so unfortunate for again a game like the box that you don't have that one two kind of punch with kelleher and she and like that is the the, the the ideal game that you want them for and i just yeah like it's kelleher missed out on the new zealand tour as well and you know like i remember covering him at 20s level and he did, he was a guy who who picked up different injuries and he just hoped that he doesn't become a guy like even like look at Will Connors like I mean out for three months now with a with a bicep injury like the guy just can't catch a break like Jordan Armour is another one who just can't seem to put a run together either so I just hope that Kelleher doesn't become 
this kind of injury prone guy where like you can't really rely on him by the time the World Cup comes around because he's outstanding. And I think if you have Sheehan and Kelleher on in your match day squad, it just adds a totally different dynamic. Great stuff, Keane. Thanks so much for joining us. Cheers, lads. Well, we are delighted to be joined by Chris Foy from the UK Daily Mail to discuss just the chaos, the financial chaos going on in English club rugby at the moment. Chris was to join Worcester in administration and probable relegation at the end of the season. It's a very tumultuous time for the English club game. You know, one thing that I really want to ask you and see what your opinion is, why do English clubs lose so much money? On the outside looking in, the Premiership is a good product. The games are exciting. There's some historic clubs there, but... Just when you look at the balance sheets, it just seems to be always going one direction. What's going on there? Oh, no, I, this is a, a recurring question, and lots of, lots of people are sort of fascinated in a in a grim sort of way and trying to get their heads around this because it doesn't it doesn't seem to fit with the image. And certainly, when you take the bigger picture of a lot of people's impression of English rugby, is they see they see England play in Ireland, they see England play in Wales on on their TV and the Six Nations or whatever and think this looks great, this looks shiny and popular and busy and full of branding and it looks vibrant and they just don't get it. And and I understand that. You know, you go to most premiership matches, there are mostly decent crowds, decent atmosphere, a feeling of a bit of a buzz about it, decent rugby towns being represented and that communities care about it and yet they're losing money. And the bottom line is they just have spent beyond their means and it's it's just uh this we've spent weeks and weeks trawling around this subject talking a lot about Worcester more latterly about wasps and the bottom line is they've all sort of gambled and taken degrees of sort of financial risk in the hope of building squads being competitive spending up to the salary cap having a fighting chance of having a go in Europe and they just can't afford it they just it just does not wipe its face it does not financially sustain itself and I think there's been an awareness for a while it's like that. And then COVID came along and exacerbated everything. But COVID is not to blame for this. This is something that's been coming for a while. And, and it's just absolutely sending shockwaves around the place. So is it, is it a case of basically player salaries? The clubs are spending too much, paying players too much money and clubs can't afford to play them what they have been paying them. Yeah, essentially that's it. And it's a really... It's a really hard subject, this, I think, because essentially what you're doing is you're, you're bringing together two of the really big talking point issues in the sport at the moment, which is on the one hand, uh, finances that are really stretched, not just in England, in other places too, uh, and, and not just at club level in some cases. You're talking about real financial strain. And on the other hand, the danger of the sport, the spectre of concussion, the the risk that people take in their working lives to play the game, which means most right-thinking people would say everyone's got the right to earn as much money as they can do in this difficult job because they put themselves in harm's way. And yet, within that right to do that, there's also got to be a calculation of, well, can it be afforded? Quite simply, can can the employers afford to pay what they've been paying? And they can't. And, and wages have, have gone through the roof in recent years in England, in the Premiership. Um, they all have to try and keep up with each other. You know, it's it's a classic thing, isn't it? That they, they, they are having a competitive league and trying to keep up with each other. There is a cap, but the cap went up, the cap went up, and they were putting the salary cap up based on projected profits or projected revenue, not the revenue at the time. They were sort of projecting ahead and sort of estimating what money they might make and sort of 
best case scenario, thinking, right, well, that means we can afford to put the cap up. And they couldn't afford it. They sort of overreached and, and they've overreached for years. And sadly, it's sort of coming home to roost now. And it is mainly it is mainly to do with player wages, but it's it, this is not sort of a stick to beat players with. That's just a fact of the matter. But also it's just staff numbers and backroom staff and whatever. There's more and more specialist coaches, all sorts of sort of support staff you get. The whole thing is ballooned in size in terms of the professionalism of the game and that all costs money and they've just not been able to keep the revenue increasing as much as the wages have needed to increase mm, yeah there's loads to unpack there Luke but just on, on, I suppose I know we're in the Irish kind of side of things where the model is different over here in terms of the IRFU's role and, and their ownership of the provinces ultimately but in terms of you know player wages you obviously played professional rugby for 10 years you, you know you were a prominent player yourself you know when we think of rugby player wages we, we can't just always say well you know they're not earning anywhere near as much as the footballer so therefore they must not be exorbitant they must not be like you know too much or, or beyond what clubs can afford like what's your perspective on, on that and what the point Chris was making yeah look it's a it's just the reality of the numbers not uh not not adding up I was doing some kind of quick calcs here I just, just there's not, not enough information to do you know anything really in depth but i mean it just looks like they've been kind of borrowing lots of lots of money um you know to uh to try and fund this model it looks like uh, there's a headline there i mean i just typed it in uh, before we went on air about how much debt is there you know in the english rugby premiership it says there's about 500 million worth of of debt built up in the clubs and that's amongst 13 clubs and now that could be a real high level figure. I don't know. I, I, you know, you can't verify that. But that means if there's 13 clubs, and there's obviously clubs that are more indebted than others, it means there's 38 million of debt in each club. Um, you know, and even just a quick calc, if you had 45 players in a squad, so I'm saying there's 20, you know, pretty good players on 150k a year. That's three million a year. If you had 25 on 80k a year, so I'm working off those averages, that means there's two million a year. So that's five million if you have 45 players on those types, you know, different compositions. But as an average, then you, that's not including any backroom staff, coaches, you know, upkeep of the stadium, uh, you know, upkeep of the facilities, all those kind of things. So it looks to me like, yeah, they've just kind of been gorging on on kind of cheap debt, um, which has been the case for lots of different businesses around the world. It's not just a rugby issue. There's going to be lots of businesses now with interest rates going up. Um, that'll that'll be feeling the pinch on this, you know. So I think um, rugby is kind of feeling the effects of that now. It's a very difficult situation. Um, it's obviously very fluid at the moment. You see Wasps obviously this week. I mean, that's a huge club to to uh, to be going into administration with lots of kind of steeped in history. So um, yeah, it's it's a really really difficult time for the game. Uh, I'd say it looks like they're going to need some new investment, but that's going to cost money too. And if you were looking at it. I mean, even the average size. So I looked at the stadium size. I mean, the average stadium size isn't actually that big in in the Premiership. It looks to me like it's about twelve or thirteen thousand. Chris, you might correct me on that. Um, you know, and like even if you were looking at revenue, at, I don't know. I, I'm not going to get into all the calcs I was doing, but it doesn't look like it looks like you know if you were getting thirty quid a ticket and at full capacity in a stadium of twelve thousand, eleven thousand people, that's about ten million roughly a year. Um, just under that. Uh, I don't know how the TV money kind of then. Play, you know is, is doled out but look the numbers just look a little bit dicey to me and that's clearly what's been playing out uh, and I think it looks like you need a, a you know a fairly wealthy benefactor to go and fund this model uh, and that's what makes this work I think it's what makes it work in Fr work in France even if the TV money is better over there as well so um, very worrying times I think we need our neighbours to be strong English rugby needs you know it's club game to be strong I mean there's 
steeped in tradition and they get great you know there, there are great attendances at the state and there's great interest in it it's a super league to watch i think um so really worrying times i've gone on a bit there in terms of the player just to go directly to your question i'll answer quickly player wages i mean is, is that the main issue here I, i'm not 100 percent sure on that and that's difficult to say um you know i think uh you know it's a very dangerous game and as chris said i mean would you would people would you knowingly go into this if you're not going to get paid you know pretty well for it I, i'm not 100 percent sure i don't know about that either uh it would make it uh you know if there was people who had very high you know very good job prospects coming out of school and college with good grades etc you might lose a whole cohort of those people if there's not even if this isn't uh, you know if you're not getting remunerated correctly for it so um yeah very concerning um but they won't be alone. It, rugby is not going to be alone as a business in terms of gorging on cheap debt and now having an issue when rates go up, which is probably what's happening at the moment. Chris, do you want to come back in there? Yeah, just picking up on a couple of points Luke raised. I mean, the, the phrase always used is the, the, the sugar daddy system, the, the, the idea of this rich benefactor. And it's no, it's no sustainable system. It is, it is not something that can be relied upon as a long-term means of funding a sport a professional developed sort of grown-up sport it just can't be that way and they they've sort of known this and they've sort of got away with it because there have been people who've been willing to keep digging deeper and deeper into big pockets but it is no way to carry on and again uh, Luke is right you you get these you get these benefactors in France but I think the thing that really always strikes me in France is you go to what the the, the big clubs the big grounds I, I remember so many times turning up to Toulouse and you just see this board at the gates of the uh, of the stadium showing the list of their blue chip sponsors, and it's just unbelievable. It is just like a a roll call of high end companies, well known multinational, worldwide sort of companies, all want to invest because that is the biggest show in town. That's what everyone cares about. That is the the main event. That is the thing that gets everyone's attention. That part of France, it, that's the show. And they all want to be in on it. They all want to be involved with it. I, I was speaking to a, a former chief executive of a club the other day, and he talked about um, one particular sponsor sponsoring Toulon a few years back and just said at that time it was seen as one of the biggest sporting sponsorships they'd ever seen in France, above most of anything they'd ever seen in football. And that's the... That's the pull they have there. They just don't have that pull here. It's not the same. It just doesn't. It doesn't have that same resonance in in enough of the market in this country. I mean, even you know, talking from an Irish perspective, we come over to matches at, at Tomon Park or come and watch uh, Leinster in Dublin, and you feel like there's such a big community sort of buy into that that it's a really big deal in the area that it really matters. There's not a huge amount of England where that is replicated. And there's no way of there's no way of artificially creating it. You can try and build it up, but they've been doing that for years and years and years, and you know it's it's not always worked. So there's lots of different things that make it. Uh, I don't know. It's hard. It's hard to get over these issues. And the other thing there is um, the other thing is the broadcast issue. The broadcast revenue is relied upon, and it's flatlined. Broadcast revenue and the rights deals and sponsorship deals were seen as the things that would keep growing and growing and growing exponentially. They just haven't. They flatlined. I mean, we, we can see it in a European sense with the, the European Cups, which the English clubs decided to go all militant and try and change everything and get rid of Heineken who had sponsored it for years and we'll have all these new sponsors. 
and it didn't work out that way. There's just not the market they used to be. That's a sort of that's a problem beyond just rugby, but rugby has found that. And 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 you take you take the Six Nations, and there's a big Six Nations match, and there'll be 10 million people watching here. But you take you take Gloucester against you know Exeter, and the market's a lot smaller, and it just you know it it, it can't attract the same level of uh, income as as the top end of the game. Yeah, Luke, because it, it, this kind of financial kind of crisis has kind of driven home to me that like rugby is still quite a small sport. Like Chris was mentioning how great it is at Tom and Park at the RDS, but that's still only very small portions. Go to anywhere else in those cities, like, and rugby doesn't have a huge footprint outside of those areas either. Like the international game, as Chris said, you know, captures the, the kind of casual supporter and gets a lot of buy-in, but club rugby still it maybe struggles to kind of get anywhere near say it's counterpart in, in in football for example in terms of like mass market appeal like is, is rugby just too small enough a sport to you know generate those big revenues that, that chris was saying that is needed yeah look it was that's fairly stark isn't it when you look at when i looked at those stadium sizes i was just thinking like really you know you can't really compare and like in fairness the, the wages still don't compare to football wages anyway like you're kind of getting the best players in the world are probably getting paid the same as you know, maybe even probably actually, sorry, probably less than the top people are getting played in the in the first division in 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 the UK in the in in football. You know, so I think um, that you know that's reflective of the of the popularity of the sports. Now, the funding model I think is completely different. Is not completely as different. You know, you would be relying, I think, very much on you know your stadium revenues and your advertising revenues around the stadium. I don't think the TV money is anywhere near what it would be in football which is i think what really carries that model aside from say the big kind of funds and all that kind of stuff that have invested in the different clubs and the benefactors which kind of make it work too as well um you know in in the football world they rely very much more in terms of their funding like even united and all these guys who might have eighty thousand a week or maybe twice a week come to games um you know the the real Yes, that is a strong recurring revenue source, but the other revenue that they get is very much from the TV. The TV is what really props it up, um, you know. So, and, and there's other players coming into that game now that are kind of upping that. Your Amazons and all these kind of guys. So they just there's just the interest level is there. You're going to get eyeballs on whatever you're kind of you know you're advertising in, in football versus you know I, I'd say the TV audience for for rugby matches is very very small comparatively. Um, so yeah, it's a different funding model, I think, Will, between football and rugby, and probably not really suitable for for comparison. I think the 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 revenue would be very much more tilted towards what you get in your stadium on a week on week basis um, versus f- football. So it, look, it, it's it's in a very challenging period right now. And, and what I would say as well is like even the big fo- even the big football clubs get this wrong. So I would, like we're having a go at the Premiership clubs, but like let's just face it, like it's it's just a general. Um, it's a general trade of kind of businesses for a long period of time. Um, like over the last 12 or 14 years, like, the, the, like since the, since the, the crash in, in 08, like lots of, like debt has been very cheap to get and that's how that's what's been funding all these kind of things for a long period of time was the assumption that the rates wouldn't go up uh you look at barcelona and the, and the challenges they're having um you know i mean it's not like that's one of the biggest clubs in the world and they're having problems now funding their 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 business model you know they've had to sell off cash flows future cash flows that the, they're they're getting to to keep things alive there um so look it, it's Sport is a funny one, you know, uh, and it's very difficult. Like you look at Barcelona, like so. What they've done now is they've decided they can. Well, like it's not sustainable to uh, to not have a team that's performing well. 
you know that kind of way so they said okay we're going so that's what they've done so that's why it's like it's very difficult you look at the english premiership clubs what they've done is yes the salary cap is is has gone up and they've tried to you know keep players you know good players in their squads but the, the whole model dies if no one's coming to watch these great these you know a good quality rugby and, and and the same thing happens across football too you know when barcelona aren't doing so well when the tv money is down when they get when you know when they're redoing their stadium when there's not 90 or 100 thousand people's uh, people uh, in the in the camp new th- things fold up there pretty quickly too so it's 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 we've got to be careful about how hard we're judging these these guys um on on, on the decisions that they've made because lots of other p- people have been doing that too well so I'm, I'm conscious they're getting a kicking at the moment but you know lots of people have been doing it in lots of different spheres yeah chris what do you see happening now like there's been talk of maybe the, the league going to 10 teams potentially um you know, from my point of view, like a, a vibrant second tier, if you had a couple of quality teams, maybe, you know, a Worcester, a Wasps and a another going down into it to make a competitive second tier like the Pro D2 in France does sound appealing to me anyway. But from your perspective, what do you think will happen over the next 12 to 24 months in terms of the premiership structure and how clubs will try to dig their way out of these kind of problems? Yeah, well, they, I mean, they, they keep talking about um, all all ideas are on the table. Everything's up for discussion. I think they've realised they've reached this critical point in time where they've been forced to a cliff edge and they've got to make some big decisions. Um, we spoke to Bill Sweeney, the RFU chief executive, on Sunday, and he was talking about they are ready to be open-minded to deal with premiership rugby, to deal with the government in some cases, and really just thrash out a new plan, a restructure, an overhaul of everything. Everything's up for discussion. They talked about central contracts. My understanding is that's probably a non-starter because that will cost the union a fortune. Um, And I don't think they're prepared to go that far. But there'll probably be more of an arrangement between the clubs and the union where there's more funding for a bit more access and they take some of the financial burden off the clubs by paying a bit more. It'll be a sort of incremental process, I guess, to sort of pay a bit more for a bit more access to the players and in return the clubs make a saving. They will probably reduce the size of the premiership. I, sadly, I just don't think... I would love them to bolster the championship. I would love them to make it a really strong, vibrant, viable second tier. And I'm, I'm, I'm quite saddened by covering an English club rugby and seeing the comparison with France and just thinking it's just a gulf. It's The gap is enormous. It's just... An astonishing difference, but there's so many layers of there's so many different things involved in it in terms of sort of state, you know, stuff to do with the councils investing in stadiums over there. To they they invest in the infrastructure around the clubs. Uh, there's tax breaks in players' salaries. There's all sorts of things that are state and local government level interventions in France that help them have that sort of strength and encouragement to invest. But it is a shame because you see that you see Pro D do you see the the things they do over there to really expand the game. They've got great TV deals. Everything's flying. They're going to have a World Cup and they're going to go off into the stratosphere completely. And England is languishing miles behind that. So I don't think realistically they will do much more than manage to bolster the championship in a way to make it a sort of development league. They'll reduce the size of the premiership. They will still allow the door to be open if clubs want to invest, to be ambitious and try and join the top division. Um, and then they're just talking about other things, about a willingness to change and have different attitudes, to be more open, less secretive, let let cameras in, do documentaries to try and get people engaged, draw in a bigger audience, do the sort of things that have been done in other sports to to to, to grab some attention. And the other fundamental thing they have to do is 
sort the calendar out so when the league game is on, the best of that team play the best of the other team. And it's not a team minus six test players who are resting or, you know, a rotation system that means people aren't available. It just has to be the best teams. People can see through something that isn't the real deal and they just won't pay to come and watch it. So they've got to come and say, Saracen are playing. You wouldn't go about, you wouldn't go about bailing the clubs out, no? You think that's the I, that, right That's way? just not going to happen. That that I mean, uh, I know for a fact they're not going to go there. I mean, literally, this came up in conversation with Bill Sweeney, and he, to paraphrase, he said, we're not just going to throw money into a black hole of debt. They've got a business to run. They've not run it effectively. It's not for us to come and just throw money at the problem. And I think that they, the union have money. They are in a bad state compared to what they have been historically because of COVID. But... The Rugby Football Union is a money-making machine when the, the going's good. They fill Twickenham and make 10, 15 million pound to go. They've got a whole new shiny East and hospitality everywhere. They churn out commercial deals and it's, it's an unbelievable money-making machine. COVID put a spanner in the works with that. But they will go back to being extremely profitable and successful commercially. But they believe that the clubs have to stand on their own and they can't just prop them up, prop them up, prop them up on a, on a broken business model that's just going to break again some point down the line. And I, and I understand the logic of that, to be fair. They, they need to know that it's changing and being properly robust for the future, I guess. Can I ask you just a different question on that? I mean, look, I suppose we're to probably Worcester to a lesser extent, but Wasps certainly, you know, have contributed, you know, generally to the to the national team, you know, two players, three, whatever. Usually they contribute one or two players at least to a squad. Not quite the same as Saracens, but just to draw a comparison and maybe come back, you know, as Saracens struggled and went down to the the, the first division, um, you know, I thought that really impacted performances for the national team. And I'm wondering about the same thing happening if other clubs fall over. And I'm kind of saying, part of me thinks there will always be that 80,000 that'll go to Twickenham. I just always feel that. Uh, and as you say, there'll be sponsors who always want to go to a big event for the national team. But if the performance has dipped... Does that ever still, would that change? So my point is, I suppose where I'm coming, where, where I'm getting to is they, if they don't bail out these clubs and they don't ever come back, because like if you don't bail them out now, it's very hard for these clubs to come back as an entity. You know, it'll take 10, 15 years for them probably to, to get back uh, to, to where they were. And, and that'd be, I think, still a stretch, very difficult to do. Um, you know, does it then, if, does, it, does it have a knock-on effect and affect the product that you're putting out for, for the national team? Um you know, over the eight games that you probably, oh, let's say five games that you might have at home a year. And does that, by implication then, you know, does, does it affect your revenues? Does it affect your business model if you're not performing as well? I, you know, I'm kind of trying to put myself in that position. Yeah, I see where you're going with that. I, I think the, I think the, there was a particular perfect storm with the Saracen situation colliding with COVID, the timing of it, then being relegated, not knowing what they were going into because the league, uh, the league they ended up in was abbreviated because of COVID. And suddenly players just had no meaningful rugby to have any foundation for a Six Nations. And it massively impacted. Eddie Jones denied it at the time. Down the line, he absolutely accepted it was a huge issue. He stood by them. He picked them. They didn't play well. And that is a matter of absolute fact. Now, with this situation, already the, the the top sort of layer of Wasps players are being linked with other clubs. That a handful of them will be gone very soon. Uh, this will this will happen in a matter of days. Um, Jack Willis is the only Wasps or Worcester representative 
um, as the Wasps flanker, uh, the only representative of either club in the England squad that's just been announced. He will get a club. He will definitely get a club. They've already said that if a player wants to move abroad in these exceptional circumstances from one of those clubs, they are eligible to be picked for England outside of the normal controls because this is a very unusual sort of emergency. I don't think in in this sense, with the number of clubs there are, it will have that knock-on effect you're talking about there. But it is just, it may be the tip of an iceberg. There may be others that are in trouble. And if you end up with a, a handful of clubs going to the wall, then you're starting to have a knock-on effect. You're starting to have a, a significant a significant ripple effect to the national team. Well, we could talk about this subject all night. So a major thanks to Chris Foy for joining us this week. And I'd like to thank Luke for joining me as well. We will be back next week on The Left Wing with another podcast. In the meantime, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And please rate and review us there. So until next week, thanks for listening and goodbye.